The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I gotta say their names, um... Before we get started, just please note we recorded this week's show before news about Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, and Dallas. We'll be addressing it all next week. For now, maybe we could take our minds off it for a hot minute. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We got a hell of a show this week. I am going to speak to Sekou Smith about all the lunacy in NBA free agent land. If you don't know who Sekou Smith is, he's a longtime columnist for NBA.com, co-host of the Hangtime podcast, and a former columnist with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and an insider's insider, and he's dope as hell. So you're going to want to hear that conversation. And then later in the show, you're going to hear a talk I did about Ferguson to football which is about the Missouri football players and their strike last year, the political implications of it and what it says about the NCAA. It's a talk that I just gave in front of several hundred people at the conference called Socialism 2016 in Chicago. And then I got a Just Stand Up Award for a swimmer who has a story that you will absolutely not believe. He made the Olympics, and it's actually the only reason I'm smiling about Rio 2016. Where do you hear about this guy and Just Stand Up? But before we get to Sekou, before we get to anything else, I got to give you my take about Kevin Durant going to the Warriors. Who are the Warriors? I want all the Warriors. Send the word. Being a sports fan is so irrational. And this has underlined this for me so much. It is inherently irrational to be a sports fan. Think about it. We're rooting for laundry. We're rooting for these organizations that suck billions of dollars out of the public till. We're rooting for things that are without question, objectively, a distraction from the great struggles that animate our lives all around us. Yet we do it because it makes us feel alive, even though it is a parallel reality. And that in and of itself makes it an irrational Act. And so I say that as a precursor because my reaction to this Durant signing with the Golden State Warriors is utterly irrational. Because rationally, Kevin Durant is a grown man and he can do whatever the hell he damn wants. Kevin Durant is somebody who spent almost a decade of his life in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I wouldn't spend 10 days in Oklahoma City. I'm just being frank to all the peoples out there. Dude has spent nine years. He has done his Oklahoma City time. Good for him. And frankly, it is a little bit rich for people to be angry at Kevin Durant for leaving Oklahoma City for greener pastures when the Oklahoma City Thunder absconded this team from the city of Seattle. This is a stolen team. This is a brigands team. This is a team that acted in a way that I think should have gotten the owner, Clay Bennett, brought up on charges, not become an enriched billionaire NBA plutocrat who sits on the board of governors for the league. So give me a break. Everybody in Oklahoma City should just be glad that they had a superstar for their stolen team for nine years. So that's the rational response to me. But at the same time, I'm a little bit irrational about this. 
I'm irrational about this because I really loved what Oklahoma City was doing with this team. And I was really curious about what they were going to do this year. So I'm really upset that, A, Kevin Durant even left the Thunder. Like, let's forget about going to Golden State for a second. I'm upset he left the Thunder because I love the move to get rid of their power forward, Serge Ibaka, and bringing in Victor Oladipo. So now they have an actual shooting guard on this team to go alongside Russell Westbrook. I was really curious what Durant would do with that. I was really curious about the leap that Steven Adams, their center, had made in the playoffs and if he could extend it going this year. And look at what took place in these playoffs. The Thunder were up three games to one against Golden State. They had the lead late in the game in game six. They lost in game six. Seven. And now the joke is the Golden State Warriors have two former MVPs, the first time in history, both of whom led their teams to defeats after being up three games to one in the playoffs, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. So I got to say, like, I wish he had stayed at Oklahoma City because I wanted to see what would take place. And I'm saying this even though I think it's absolutely pathetic what people like Stephen A. Smith from ESPN are saying about this move. This is Stephen A. Smith. This is his tweet, and he's basically been repeating portions of this, although at a much higher volume all over ESPN. He said, don't give a damn what anyone says. Weak move by KD. You go to GSW, that's the Golden State Warriors, the team who beat you when you're already on a title contender? Please. Look, Stephen A. Smith left the Philadelphia Inquirer to go to ESPN. His buddy Skip Bayless left the San Jose Mercury News to go to ESPN. This show moved from satellite radio to panoply. People leave for greener pastures in this world. It is utterly irrational and frankly weak to object to anybody doing the same. But you know what? This whole thing is irrational. So I'm pissed. I'm a little upset that this took place. And I'm also upset because I'm looking at Golden State. You went 73 and 9. You came within a play of winning the championship. Don't you want to go back with your same squad and try to win it straight up? You really are going to bring in Kevin Durant to try to do it instead of saying we failed this time. Let's hunker down and do it better next year. There's just something about that methodology that as a sports fan makes me upset because what it does is it narrows the lane of competition. So instead of us thinking to ourselves, how will Oklahoma City get over the hump next year against Golden State? How will Golden State get over the hump when they play Cleveland? Not if, when they play Cleveland in the NBA Finals. Instead of thinking about it like that, we're thinking about it like, okay, who is going to beat Golden State? And basically the entire season next year, that's the only question that matters. So instead of multiple questions about who's going to win the NBA Finals, we have one question. Who's going to win versus Golden State? And if you think I'm lying, ask the folks in Vegas. Always a good start. I don't know if people heard this, but these are the odds for next season's NBA championship. The Spurs, 8-1. to one. The Cavs, 3-1. to one. The Warriors, please listen to this, 4-5. to five. Those are the odds that the Warriors are going to win the championship. 4-5. to five. The last thing I'll say is I think Kevin Durant is going to learn this and learn this the hard way. He's going to learn what LeBron James learned, which is five championships, six championships in Miami are worth less than one championship in Cleveland. There is something to be said for being the superstar that drags your team over the hump. It just has a different feel. It's a different kind of operation when you're that guy. So what Dirk Nowitzki did 
in Dallas, what LeBron just did in Cleveland, what Dwayne Wade did with Miami way back when in 2007, that's really how they mark greatness. So this is Kevin Durant taking a pass on greatness. And what's upsetting about it is that it's not like he's LeBron in Cleveland dragging Booby Gibson to the finals. Durant had a real team, a real chance, a real operation. And I'm upset that we don't get the end of that narrative to see if he could have pulled the brigand franchise, the Oklahoma City Thunder, the stolen squad, to an NBA championship. So I'll tell you what, enough of my yakking. Let's bring on Sekou Smith. So Sekou, just straight up right away, if you are Kevin Durant, do you go to the dubs? Listen, I'm Kevin Durant, and, I, and I've done my diligence as a free agent, Dave. I don't have anything else on my mind other than winning championships, doing whatever it takes to get there as quickly as possible. So I absolutely uh, would have made the move. I don't have any problem with it. But that's the choice you would have made, given all the choices out there, given the chance to stay at Oklahoma City with this emerging team, or given the chance to go to the East with an easier road to the finals. You think Golden State is the best move? Oh, I don't think there's any question. I think, uh, you know, when you factor in the opportunity to win at the highest level right away, the market you're going to be in, the structure and organization going to be in. And, and listen, I'm not here to knock Oklahoma City. And what was built there with Kevin Durant as the centerpiece and what could continue to to be uh, built in that market and in that franchise without him. But you have to take the opportunities, Dave, when you have – the leverage and all of the power to make a decision that you feel is best for you and what you want to do in your life. And as a professional, you built a huge amount of capital up as the centerpiece of the Oklahoma city thunder. But if you decide at his age, that there's a different challenge you want to take, you take it. Look, Sekou, you're a professional storyteller. That's what you do. You tell the stories of the NBA and I'm sure there are some stories that you're more excited to tell than others. Like, are you more excited to tell the story of an Oklahoma City team that maybe can come back and knock off the Warriors after coming so close? Or are you more excited to tell the story of how will Kevin Durant mesh with this 73-win team and have the entire league just chasing the overwhelming favorites to win the next title? What story would you be more excited to tell? I don't think there's any question. We like Titan teams in our business. We like the clash of the Titans. And when I was growing up, you know, we had the Lakers and Celtics every year, no matter whether they finished the season playing for a championship or not, there was always the specter of that East West rivalry and magic bird. So I'm always wanting to tell the story that has the biggest impact, the largest implications and, and has the most definitive long lasting message. You know, let's, let's not kid ourselves here for all that the Thunder have done for all Kevin Durant did there one of the Western Conference Finals four to six years of uh, the last six years, they never crossed the threshold. They mm-hmm. never walked through the fire to get to the championship that everybody assumed they would, you know, after they made that finals run earlier in his career. So I don't feel like there was some story left to be written, you know, that's going to damage the impact of the league or hurt, hurt the legacy of the NBA. This is about players, choosing their own path. And I think a lot of people, Dave, get upset because mm-hmm. in a previous era, front office types, you know, the Red Arbucks of the world, 
They were the ones who orchestrated championship teams. They were the ones who picked the pieces and decided who was going to play where and, and whether or not it would work. And now the power is in the players' hands. And that scares people. I think that, that frightens a lot of people to know that a select few players, you know, and mainly it's these guys who have meshed and met each other through their USA basketball experience, are determining their own futures. I love that. I love that the players are using that power, and I think, I think it's great. But I know there are a lot of people who don't like that. I got to ask you this, because we are still talking about a majority black league being marketed to a majority white audience. Do you think some of the resentment is the fact that instead of it being white guys in suits making these decisions, it's young black men? I think the real color issue is green. And I think when you have such exorbitant amounts of money being spent, and, and uh, granted, the owners... If they're capable of spending what they are on players, that should let you know what kind of money they're seeing on their end. But I just think when you get in that high-stakes, powerful realm that we are in the NBA right now with players making unbelievable amounts of money, I think green is the color that impacts the public's perception, not necessarily the black or white issue that I know a lot of people would, would of course, believe is a part of this equation. I, I don't think we've come close to to that being the biggest issue for a lot of people. Right now, it's the money issue. And I and I, I heard it all day long yesterday. I had a family reunion. You know, we had hundreds of people there. And I'm telling you, from the oldest to the youngest, they all wanted to talk about, can you believe how much money these players are making? And, you know, can you believe Kevin Durant's going towards? Like, that is the unifying theme of what the public looks at right now. I think it's just money, power, and respect at its highest level. You know, this interview just got a little awkward because where was my invitation to the family reunion? <laughs> What's that about? And we sent out an e- my sister sent out an Evite, and apparently we missed about six million people that <laughs> said they would have showed up oh, had man. they known about it. So I-, I feel bad. I feel horrible. Next time we do the big shebang get-together, I'm going to have to just blast it out there to the masses. Please, just put it on Twitter. I, <laughs> I got to ask you this because and it's weird calling this the Stephen A. Smith position because it's not just Stephen A. by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Howard Bryant put out something similar, and I can't think of two more different people in sports journalism than Stephen A. and Howard Bryant, but they both said the same thing, which is they said, Kevin, this is weak. In my day, Dr. J went lost three games to one to the Celtics and then came back and beat the Celtics. What happened to wanting to come back and beat the other team? How do you respond to that argument that this is weak, this is not alpha male enough for us? Yeah, I think that macho argument that people are talking about misses the fact that time will tell us whether or not guys were playing with other historically great players or not. We'll Mm -hmm. we'll know that you know, after uh, some distance from from the moment. You know, I don't remember anybody griping about Magic, Kareem, Worthy, and all those guys playing together. Bird, Parrish, DJ, McHale. Like, it's the way the teams were structured, I think, that a lot of people have a problem with. But what they conveniently forget is that Dr. J lost that series, and then they come back. It's not like they just came back with the same team. Think about who they added to the mix yes. to help them get over that hump. A you certain know, so somebody. <laughs> a certain top five center of all time. You think? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I just laugh at this notion that the players of today are somehow softer. And I, you hear from the common refrain from players of yesteryear that, well, these guys couldn't have played in our era. And this, that, and it's like, don't kid yourself. Don't give yourself that much credit to assume that the best of the best of any time period wouldn't be transcendent figures capable of operating at the highest level whenever they might have come into the game. I, I think that's disingenuous, 
on the part of anybody who calls Kevin Durant weak. In fact, I think he's ratcheted up the pressure on himself to win so much now that if he doesn't, his legacy takes a bigger dip and a bigger hit if he never wins a title in Oklahoma City at all than not winning at least one with the Warriors. No, that's a great point. People don't look at it that way, that he's actually taken on a greater weight than if he'd stayed at Oklahoma City, where he could have probably been, maybe, if you look at the Western Conference, a lovable loser until his mid-30s. And then, like, Garnett gone somewhere old and helped a team win a championship, but not the ability to max out his prime. Well, Dave, that's what bothers me about this idea that, you know, it's not okay for the players to determine, you know, where they go in in these super teams. When the Celtics assembled... Paul Pierce and Ray mm-hmm. Allen and Kevin Garnett at the perfect time of their careers to share the wealth and share the load. You know, it was Danny Ainge and Kevin McHale using a relationship that had been forged over years, over decades, mm-hmm. to get a deal done. So why is it a bad thing for, you know, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh to decide when we're free agents, we're going to play together and we're going to chase championships as a group? Why is that not okay for Kevin Durant? to say to Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson, let's team up together and see if we can't win a championship. I don't see why it's okay for the powers that be to orchestrate it and not the guys who are going to be putting in the blood, sweat, and tears on the floor to do it. And it's a little bit rich for Paul Pierce to tweet out, well, I guess if you can't beat him, join him. Because maybe Pierce, yeah. maybe Paul didn't leave the Celtics, but come on. We know how you got your ring, Paul. People joined you. They joined him. Yeah. And, and he's not giving that ring back. He's not giving that finals MVP back. And he's going to go down as one of the all-time great players in Celtics history based on that ring, pure luck that the stars aligned when they did to put that team together. No, exactly, exactly right. So people in Boston who've been tweeting me because I criticized Pierce for saying that, seriously, go back to Sully's, drink a beer, and wait for Patriot <laughs> season. Tired of you. I still will maintain, we won't have to dwell into this, but I still maintain that people's discomfort with this really does have to do with they're comfortable with this very top-down guy in a suit making the decisions and the idea of someone 28, 29 years old assuming that kind of power, I think makes people uncomfortable. You're right. And, and I think not only is, it a, is there a social dynamic in, to it in that respect, I think there's also one, a generational dynamic. Think about the new millionaire and billionaire class in Silicon Valley exactly. and the way that there's been this new rise of wealth among guys who, who weren't born into it, who weren't quote-unquote blue bloods. I mean, to me, what you see going on in the league right now from the player side is the same entrepreneurial spirit and innovative ideals that you see in the tech industry and in any cutting-edge, um, you know, businesses. You know, you want to find new and different ways to leverage your power to get to the ultimate goal, whatever that might be for you. And I, I applaud Kevin Durant for having the guts to do something that he knew would be unpopular in Oklahoma that he knew a lot of people would criticize him for. And he's willing to go ahead and, and make that choice, live with it, and try and define his legacy and in, in, in his history as a player by winning championships as opposed to wondering year after year whether he's going to get there in Oklahoma City or not. All right, I hear you, man. I hear you up for a very quick round of Am I Wrong? Oh, yeah, let's do it. Feel Four. free. Tell me, Am I Wrong? All right, everybody's talking, of course, about the dubs. But I've heard other people say that now the OKC Thunder, their ceiling is like 7th or 8th seed, Suns or Jazz type level. But I actually think that they can still be competitive enough to get into the Western Conference Finals. Am I wrong? Uh, I I think you're half wrong. 
it depends on how healthy the rest of the field is because I think they can only get to that conference finals round if somebody does what they did this past season and knock off the Spurs. And, you know, they've got to have somebody else facilitate their rise to that level. I don't know that they have the firepower without KD to be a conference finals team. They would have to have some very good luck and good fortune fall their way in order for them to get there. Am I wrong that putting down, say, a couple hundred bucks on Russell Westbrook to win the 2017 MVP might be a very smart bet, especially given a sympathy vote? Oh, well, that's smart money, not only for the sympathy vote, but for the pure fury that he's going to play with this year, um, <laughs> you know, to prove to people that he's the guy, you know, that he is the real deal. So I'm, I'm going to enjoy watching the Thunder this season, even without KD, because I know Russ is going to turn it up to a level we've probably never seen before from him. It's going to be like watching Ray Mysterio Jr. WWE, you know what I'm saying? Like a luchador <laughs> fury. All right. Am I wrong? Kevin Durant actually made a real mistake in disregarding the Washington Wizards. John Wall at the point, easy road through the Eastern Conference. Am I wrong? You're wrong because the road through the East is not nearly as easy as people think for a team like the Wizards. And you talk about pressure. Had he made the choice to go back to D.C. where he's from and not only deal with all of that added intrigue and and the eyeballs and and the extra external pressure – he would have also been doing something that LeBron James has just done and written the storybook ending to. So it would have further damaged him in the eyes of a lot of people because they would have said, hey, he's just trying to be like LeBron and trying to follow in LeBron's footsteps. So he, st- he struck out on his own path. I don't think he made as big a mistake uh, not going to the Wizards. And now we're stuck with Scotty Brooks. Okay. Uh, am I wrong? You don't have to answer that. The most impactful free agent signing was not Kevin Durant, but Al Horford. You're wrong. And I love Al. He's a great player. He's going to be a perfect fit on that team and have Brad Stevens use him in the best ways possible. But And Kevin Durant, we're talking about one of the three best players on the planet Earth. And any time he makes a move, whether it's to stay in Oklahoma City or to go to Golden State, it's a more impactful move than anything else that could have happened in free agency. But if the Warriors make the finals and if the Celtics – make the finals would you agree with me that Horford was more impactful uh not necessarily because I think the chances of the Warriors making the finals are infinitely higher than any chance the Celtics have of getting there they've got it and Horford couldn't break through against Cleveland with an Atlanta team that's better than the Boston team he joined so Damn. you know I, I don't want to put that kind of pressure on Al but when you put it like that all right, am I wrong when we're looking at the combustible combinations created by this free agency period? The putting together of Matt Barnes and Boogie Cousins is actually less sketchy than Rajon Rondo and anybody on that Bulls team. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. I like the optics of Matt Barnes and Boogie Cousins in the same locker room. Not for what might happen to somebody else, but what they might get into it about at some point. Oh, yeah. That is uh, a match made in combustible heaven. And, uh, you know, as much as I'm rooting <clears throat> for Boogie Cousins to, to get from under the cloud of he can't be a winner and, you know, his attitude won't allow him to get to the, the level that he should, he's got a guy now in his locker room who is even more maligned than he is. So mm. he should enjoy he should enjoy the umbrella that is Matt Barnes. And Rondo on the Bulls, you see that ending well for anybody, or do you wish we could actually buy stock in this won't end well? I, I just wonder what the Bulls think they're biting off in Rajon Rondo 
Um, in terms of a guy you worry about, you know, meshing with a young coach like Fred Hoiberg, unless they know something we don't about Fred Hoiberg and about Rajon Rondo, that has the potential for all sorts of issues that could undo that thing down the line. But I really do like the idea of Jimmy Butler playing with a pass-first point guard like Rondo because we may see things out of him that we haven't um, thus far in his career. Oh, yeah. First or second team, All-NBA, not crazy if you think about how this could fall. I Am I – maybe you do think that's crazy. Well, let's just let that no, one go. Okay, cool. Am I wrong? The actions of the Knicks – we're like a chef making a steak and kidney pie. It's a pie, so it's together, but it's a gross collection of body parts. Oh, boy, you just ruined lunch for me. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the Knicks' lens is in terms of the player profiles of the guys they've assembled. Maybe they see something in that group and in the potential of that group that the rest of us don't. Or maybe they're just desperate and they need to add whoever they can at whatever cost it takes to put themselves back in the playoff conversation. But if I'm a Knicks fan, free agency has not gone according to the script I'd have wanted the past few years. And this is really the best effort they've made to surround Carmelo Anthony with at least quality level pros. Even guys like Derrick Rose, who are you know far removed from his MVP season, Joe Kim Noah, not near the all-star he was at one point in his career. They're still guys who I feel better about than the, than the recent uh, iterations of the New York Knicks. Last question for you. Am I wrong? The forgotten person in this free agency bonanza in terms of someone who's getting no props is Billy Hunter, much maligned ex-head of the NBA Players Association. No, you're not wrong. And I said this to somebody the other day, for all the guff he took when the CBA was, was signed and for all that we thought the players had given up, there are guys, Timothy Mozgov among them and, and many others, who have benefited from whatever deal it was Billy Hunter struck that they will never be able to repay him for. I mean, there are guys who cashed in this summer in ways that, you know, as Charles Barkley would say, the elders are rolling over in their graves right now seeing the money that got passed out to players who, God bless them for coming along at the right time, but have no business in, you know, in reality sense of being the the multi-million dollar players that they are. And we won't even have to name names on that. Not not even even in the slightest, nothing that rhymes with the Schmandler Schmarsons, will we say, <laughs> on this show. No, I'm, I'm, leave, I'm leaving the finger pointing part out and letting people uh, choose their own adventure on this. <laughs> I got you. And what an adventure it'll be. Hey, Sekou, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Anytime, Dave. You know it. Any last big shoes left to drop? Yeah, LeBron might consider going somewhere else. No, never mind. <laughs> you know it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Seku. All right, sir. Talk to you, babe. That was Seku Smith. He does the indispensable Hangtime blog and Hangtime podcast for NBA.com. And now we have a talk I just gave in front of a room of about 200 people at the Socialism 2016 conference. The talk is titled From Ferguson to Football. It's about Muhammad Ali and the strike of Ferguson football players against racism last fall. Is I actually want to start, since this is a meeting about sports and resistance, uh, by raising a glass 
to somebody who just left us last month, who passed away, uh, the most important political athlete who ever lived, and the most famous war resistor in the history of war, and that would be Muhammad Ali. So, up for Can you give me... Ali's very important because it's about knowing our history, not the history that they teach us, but the actual history. And uh, just a quick story. I was in a city once. I don't want to name it. I was Philadelphia. And um, <laughs> it's a true story. And I went into a, it was a left-wing bookshop to do a talk. It was for my first book, right? It was What's My Name, Fool? Sports and Resistance in the United States. And I went in there and I said, hi, I'm here to do the talk. My name's Dave Zirin. And the guy behind the counter looked at me and he said, but, but, but you're white. And I said, yeah, last I checked. And he said, but isn't that you on the cover of your book? That's a true story. And, um, and I'll never forget looking around the bookstore and seeing posters of people like Malcolm X and Emma Goldman. And here they were not aware, they had not integrated into their lives one of the most important resistance figures of this century. Now, there's actually a couple of lessons about Ali's life that I think are directly relevant to this talk. Uh, the first is that sports is an incredibly powerful tool uh, to speak out um, against racism. And it always has been because it's so dependent on black labor and the platform is so massive. Uh, Stokely Carmichael once said about Muhammad Ali that he was more dangerous than I could ever be because he had a platform that I could never hope to command. The second lesson about Muhammad Ali is that context is everything. You know, our history, our media, they are allergic to context. So Muhammad Ali, after he died, was discussed like he was this magical and safe figure from Planet Awesome who came down to entertain us all. But the fact of the matter is, is that if the 1960s don't happen, if the black freedom struggle doesn't happen, if the anti-war movement doesn't happen, then there is no Muhammad Ali. There's Cassius Clay, a young, brash, boxer from Louisville whose only dream in life when he was 18 was to bring the showmanship of professional wrestling into boxing. And if you'd asked him who his hero was, he wouldn't have said Malcolm X. He would have said gorgeous George Wagner, who was a pro wrestler of the day. So if we want to understand, in other words, how the most famous athlete on earth in the United States once said, and I quote, God damn the white man's money, then you need context to know why that's the case. Um, I was thinking of wearing a shirt, goddamn the white man's money, but then I was like, that a little dicey. I don't know about that. <laughs> nice way to get fired, too, by the way. Um, now, similarly, the story at Missouri is the story of college football players going on strike against racism, and it cannot be explained or understood or weaponized for our use unless we understand the context. But before I delve into it, it's worth taking a second and just appreciate why we're doing this talk. I mean... Just a step back. I'm sure many of you went to college and just think for a second. Holy a college football team went out on strike against racism. It's unimaginable, except it happened. It's like, I don't know, people in Brazil demonstrating against the World Cup in soccer. You'd never think such a thing could take place. It did. Okay. Um, 
And to understand why it happened, it's worth knowing something about Missouri because, yes, racism exists everywhere in our society. Yes, there's no such thing as a hermetically sealed space that somehow is racism, that somehow is racism free. But at the same time, different places, different institutions, because of histories of struggle, resistance, politics, are less racist than other places. Like, for example, I bet a CTU meeting is less racist than a Trump rally. And there are reasons why that's the case. It's because people fought for that space to be better. In other words, to use uh, Kianga Taylor's phrase, which many of us have quoted, that racism is baked into the cake of this country, which is true, it's also true that there's some parts of the cake that are more poisonously sweet than others. And let me tell you, the state of Missouri will give you diabetes. So, and to know this, you got to know the history, because what is Missouri? Missouri is a slave state that was neutral during the Civil War and also part of the Union. So it sent thousands of troops both north and south. Missouri was a state that saw 1,200 battles to preserve slavery, the most of any non-Confederate state in the country. It was a state where there was guerrilla fighting to restore slavery for years after the Civil War, long after it ceased elsewhere. It was a state that because of its status as a neutral part of the Union, it was never occupied militarily or even had a taste of radical reconstruction. And that's why it was also the state before South Carolina, before Alabama, that had Confederates back in power after the Civil War, the first state. Now, that might seem a little far-fetched to talk about a football team in 2016. And, you know, I could probably quote some marks, you know, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living, or, I guess, or, um, <laughs> you know, Faulkner uh, said the past is never dead, it's not even past, or a certain son of Missouri named Mark Twain who said uh, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. But the point is that history matters. It matters a lot. And it's also connected. Now, remind you, I did this book with John Carlos, the 68 Olympian who raised his fist. And John Carlos always reminds me, he always says, Dave, never forget that you're here talking to me. And my dad fathered me when he was about 60 years old. So my grandfather was a slave. We are that close to slavery. Never think the past is that past. And this is true with Missouri as well, because the start of the football story at Missouri begins 90 years ago, when you still had actually people who were alive during the Civil War, people who may have even been able to fight at a young age in those battles to keep slavery, who are then going to Missouri football games. And this story begins 90 years ago because it was 90 years ago when um, Iowa played Missouri for the, first, um, for the first time and the last time until 90 years later. And this is kind of interesting because why did they play once 90 years ago and then not again until 2014? Well, it was because uh, the Missouri uh, football team insisted that they would not play Iowa if they had any uh, black players on the field. So Iowa kept their black players back in, uh, back in Iowa City, and they went to Missouri to play with an all-white team. And afterwards, there was such an uproar on the Iowa campus about how absolutely shameful that was that the Iowa coach pledged 90-plus years ago, we will never play Missouri again because it's so awful. And it was 90 years later until they played them again. And this cancer has never been addressed in this state or in this school, and that's part of the point. Now, I interviewed a great many of alums about Missouri, and it's really stunning that the stories, the sameness of them, whether you're talking about the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, what you have are black students describing a situation where it is a normalized part of life to have a car roll by you, someone call you the N-word, throw things at you, Confederate flags, a situation of constant harassment 
harassment and terror. And they've raised these concerns again and again and again. And I, I could tell you the stories, but just trust me, they're, they're all like very upsetting. But it runs deeper than just the issue of harassment. On, admi- on an administrative level, there's this constant disrespect of black students at Missouri, and there always has been. Uh, there weren't black students at Missouri until 1950. And in that time, there have been these requests, these pleads, these, um, these pleas for black counselors on campus, which they still don't have at Missouri. Black social workers or counselors, or uh, programs, ethnic studies, like like pleased to have these things, and they're never heard. And the joke uh, on campus, which I heard from more than one person, is how does an Missouri administrator? I'm sorry, how does a Missouri administrator say "f you"? And the answer is, thank you for your input. Now. <laughs> But they didn't care because black students are 7.7% of the school's population. And so they had no social power. And I want you to remember that number, 7.7%, because it comes up a lot in this talk. So then came August 9th, 2014. Michael Brown killed by officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson just two hours away. And nothing was ever the same after that. And this, I keep thinking, again, Dr. John Carlos and this quote that he once told me about when he met with Dr. Martin Luther King before the 68 Olympics. And he said to Dr. King, he said, Dr. King, why do you care what a bunch of athletes do in Mexico City? Why does that matter to you? It doesn't seem like that big a deal compared to the struggles you're involved in. And Dr. King said to him, he said, look, what you're doing is throwing a rock into a river. Now, we don't know how big a splash it's going to make, but it's going to create ripples. And anytime you create ripples, you're going to touch somebody. I was thinking about that because Ferguson was one hell of a rock, if you think about it. Because a few people in Ferguson said no more and face down police brutality, the ripple has been global. The ripple has stretched all the way through the walls of Gaza into Palestine, for goodness sakes. And let me tell you something. If a ripple can go from Ferguson, Missouri, through the walls and barbed wire fences in Gaza, you better believe it can travel the two hours to Columbia, where the University of Missouri is. And let me tell you something. Now we have a story. Y'all ready for a story? That was a hell of a preamble. (laughs) Let's do this. Let's tell the story. All right. So Ferguson happens, and you got a whole year of black students like feel like driving to Ferguson to be part of the efforts, and then driving back and being struck. And please trust me on this. I interviewed a lot of students about this. The number one thing they t- said to me was the unreality of it all: to drive two hours and be in a war zone of racism and resistance, and then drive back and be in an environment where it felt like nobody cared. And the only time they ever felt like they even heard about Ferguson from the broader campus was on social media sites, Yik Yak, is that what it's called? Whatever, the campus stuff. And they would, the campus stuff. And they, <laughs> and they would see, like, like what, white students, like being, we better not have any of that Ferguson here. That was the only, like, resonance that they felt like it had on campus was them being threatened even more. So it's like, how is Ferguson happening? How is Black Lives Matter happening? And our situation here is actually getting worse. And it it got even worse September 2015. This is when it started to really mushroom where people just started to say no more. There's a a black student body president at Missouri named Peyton Head. And he's called the N-word. And he was just like, you know what, this has happened too many times. He wrote up a big statement about it on Facebook and it went viral. The response, though, to that statement was a swastika drawn in feces on a bathroom wall. And so the students and their group was called Concerned Students 1950 because that was the year of integration. They said, "Okay, we're going to block the homecoming parade. That was their response, which I think is a perfectly rational response to this bullshit. It's like this homecoming. 
this is not a place we want to be. So they blocked the, 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 the school's president, a guy named Tim Wolf. They blocked his car in the homecoming parade, and they said they wanted to talk to him about their concerns. The response by Tim Wolf was to tell them to swerve the car around, and it actually bumped one of the students. And this led to even more protests. And I want to be clear about this. These protests were led by black women on campus. And I'm only underlining that because whether you're talking about Ferguson or whether you're talking about the University of Missouri, we can say there wouldn't be a Black Lives Matter movement without the strength and power of black women. And that should be acknowledged. Especially in a talk that's about to get real manly with some football. Okay. Um, so... So as this is going on, Tim Wolf is not only oblivious to Ferguson, but he's carrying out his own action plan for the campus. That means cutting faculty benefits, attacking Planned Parenthood, threatening to break campus unions, and claiming budget shortfalls. And meanwhile, he's at this time pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into stadium refurbishment for the football team and signing the football coach to a brand new $4 million a year contract, a guy named Gary Pinkle. And the campus is just getting hotter and hotter, more protests, and Wolf is just oblivious. And when he did talk about racism, he issued one statement that I could even find, and he said, we have to work on our race relations. Not racism, but race relations, as if all we need are some trust falls, and then we're going to somehow deal with racism on campus. Now, this... His horrific ability to handle this situation shouldn't be too surprising because before he was president of the University of Missouri, Tim Wolf's last experience in an institution of higher learning was when he was a student at the University of Missouri. He was actually an executive at IBM. That's what he was hired out of. And he was over his head, without a clue, and obsessed with football. A faculty member actually told me a story that in the midst of all this tumult, Tim Wolf sends out a campus-wide emergency email on a Thursday. And it was like in all caps. And it said, like, emergency. And they thought, all right, this is going to address what's happening on campus. They opened it up. And the emergency, it was going to be about the tension, the cutbacks, the racism. And the emergency was, this is a quote, Reminder not to give too much homework this weekend. Big football game on Saturday. So I really do believe, and this is for folks with even a passing knowledge of the Russian Revolution, I really do believe that if there was like a Tim Wolf diary, it would be like the czars in Russia in 1917. It would be like... It would be like, woke up today, put on my big Mizzou foam finger, <laughs> fired five adjuncts without cause, ate a fine breakfast, go Tigers. So, how are we doing on time? Okay. Um, so, as all this raged, you have a 25-year-old grad student and a member of Concerned Students 1950 by the name of Jonathan Butler. And so while Tim Wolf is sending don't give homework emails because there's a football game, this is what Jonathan Butler did. He wrote a will. He wrote a will. All he had was a computer, a few thousand bucks saved up, and he wrote a will. He said he'd been called the N-word, he'd had his health benefits cut, it'd been too much, and so he decided to go on a hunger strike in the middle of campus with one goal, and that was to get Tim Wolf fired. And he said, for me, it was like, what else do I have to do to prove to you that I'm human and that I deserve to be heard? This is November 2nd, 2015, and the campus is about to be turned upside down. So Wolf announces his hunger strike, and other members of Concerned Student 1950, they pooled their money together, and they got 75 bucks together to buy one tent. And they pitched that tent, filled it with granola bars and water, and said, we're going to stay with you, Jonathan, while you do this hunger strike. There were six students in that tent the first night. By Wednesday, there were about a dozen tents. 
And then they also had a special guest show up just to shake Jonathan Butler's hand. And that was a former Missouri All-American defensive end named Michael Sam. And Michael Sam made the news when he publicly came out as being gay, and both the football team and the school rallied to him in 2014. And so for him, this was about returning the favor. And that was the first time any sort of sense of the football team made its presence known in these struggles, was Michael Sam showing up because he had been radicalized by people defending his right to live his truth. So it's interesting how this stuff connects all over the board. But if you ask where the football team was in all this, a football team that, by the way, was 69 percent black, at this time they are living in their own world. And I, I wanna, I'm going to explain what that means because, first of all, what a world it was. I mean, they'd moved to this glamour conference, the Southeastern Conference. In 2014, they were in contention for a national championship, and they didn't know any of this was happening. Not just the hunger strike, but any of it. I talked to several players, and this is remarkable, and they said this was everybody on the team. But on this incredibly racist campus, not only did they say they didn't know about the protest, but they said straight up to me, they said, we, I've never experienced racism on this campus. I was upset about what was happening to other students, but I've I've only been treated wonderfully as a student here. Even Michael Sam, when I asked him, he said, yeah, I went to show solidarity, but that was never my experience. And then he sort of paused and he said, other than the cotton balls. And I said, what do you mean the cotton balls? And he said, oh, while I was, he said this like it was no big deal. He goes, oh, while I was a student, the Black Student Center on campus got covered with cotton balls. And the white students were caught doing it and they were given a fine for littering. (laughs) And I was shocked that they all said we hadn't experienced racism, but I shouldn't have been shocked because what it speaks to is the way that college athletes in revenue-producing sports are treated like they're part gods, part chattel. So maybe they get to go to the parties, and maybe they don't, aren't told to shut up in class, and maybe they aren't called the N-word on a regular basis, but there is a deeper racism at play that dare not speak its name. And that is this area where race and class is conjoined, the area that you are not allowed to discuss as if you're living in some sort of like authoritarian society and you can't even say it out loud for fear you're going to lose your scholarship and have to be sent home. And that is the way that college athletes and revenue-producing sports have their labor stolen and taken from them. And it's not a coincidence that the revenue-producing sports are basketball and football, sports that, by the way, depend entirely almost on the labor of black athletes and the sweat from black bodies. And if we want to dispense all the niceties from this discussion, we will call college sports what they are, and that's the organized theft of black wealth. Um, but... But don't take my word for it, please. I'm just some guy with a drink. But let's talk to Walter Byers, the person who really founded the modern NCAA and headed it from 1952 to 1987. Think about that, 35 years he headed this institution. After he retired, this is what he wrote. The coaches own the athletes' feet, the colleges own the athletes' bodies, and the supervisors retain the large rewards. That reflects a neo-plantation mentality on the campuses. And he's absolutely right. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about this. Upton Sinclair wrote about this. Richard Sherman, another great thinker, has has talked about this. Uh, The great thinkers, Du Bois, Sinclair, Sherman. But this is Walter Byers. Who would know better? So it's unassailable. Anytime someone tells you, well, they're student athletes, 
I think the best response to them is just say to them, do you know where that phrase student athlete comes from? Out of curiosity, show of hands if people know the origins of the phrase student athlete. Okay, it's a, a few enough folks that I'm going to tell you. Five folks, what you want to say? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> the, the phrase student athlete, it comes from the fact that a player in the 1950s died on the field and he was married. And his wife sued the NCAA for some form of workers' compensation. And their lawyer said, no, he's not entitled to any because he is not a worker. He is a student athlete. It was devised by a lawyer in a case to justify not paying someone whose husband had died on the field. So they talk about it as if it's so noble, student athlete. It's like George Bush talking about democracy. You know, it's like you have that, those words should not even come out of their mouths. So... I mentioned Gary Pinkle, the Mizzou coach, making $4 million a year. Just the system's changed dramatically since Walter Byers wrote that in 1987. Uh, 1987, I looked it up. The Missouri football coach made about 60 grand. Now they make $4 million. This is a massive change. Now, part of that is that they're paid for a reason. You don't pay anybody under capitalism you know, out of kindness. It's because these football coaches, and by the way, football coaches are the highest paid people in the public, on the public till in 40 of the 50 states in the United States. The highest paid public employee is a football coach. And it's because they are the generals of one of the pillars of not only neoliberal education in this country, but the economy in an age of industrial decay. Like, you really think about it for a second. Think of a place like South Bend, Indiana, which used to be a textile community where, oh, by the way, there was this small Catholic school that played some football called Notre Dame. Now South Bend is a Notre Dame-based industry, and you are somehow connected to Notre Dame. That's the story in Tuscaloosa, Tallahassee. I could name so many towns where the business is, is the university, and the pillar of the university is football. And if the football team does well, it's an extra $10 million every week in there. So the stakes are incredibly high, but that's also how you get the moral calculus of things like at Penn State, where they say, well, maybe it's worth it to cover up child rape to preserve the image of the football team. That's how you get those situations. That's how you get that moral calculus, because it's not just football. It is the heart of the cultural, economic, and emotional life for these entire communities that used to actually be industrialized towns with real union jobs. Now it's Football Inc. Now it's too many schools. I mean, the, the schools are relevant. You know, the school is what you do in between games. It is big business. That's why Pranav's good friend, the former Ohio State president, Gordon Gee, Gordon G. He famed, what was it, Gordon Gee or G? Gee. All right. Well, Gordon Gee, Gordon Gross, Gordon Gee, he, um, Right on. He once, um, this is what Gordon Gee, what happened to Gordon Gee, he, Jim Tressel was doing, there was the coach was doing something illegal, and he said, are you going to fire Jim Tressel? And Gordon Gee said, I only hope he doesn't fire me. I mean, that's because of the modern neoliberal uh, university. But while we often talk about how exploited these college athletes happen to be, we rarely talk about something more important, and that's how much social power they possess. I mean, these entire campuses, I mean, are really based on the compliant labor of 18 to 22 year olds. Their power, if they choose to exercise it, is profound. And that's what we saw at Missouri. Remember that number again, 7.7% black students on campus, 69% of the football team, African American. So students, very little social power. Football team, immense social power. And they went on strike and they got the school president canned. But how did this connect? Oh, we'll get to that. But how did this, because otherwise it's just like, 
by magic, you know. So how did the connection take place? I heard two different stories, both of which are credible. One involved um, a, a wide receiver named Jamon Moore driving by and seeing the tents and talking to Jonathan Butler and bringing it back and talking to players. The other story I heard, which I frankly think is a little more credible, is that black women on campus went to the football team and said, basically, you call yourself leaders, you call yourself men, are you going to stand up with Jonathan Butler? Are you going to stand with us? And so they had a meeting about it. And uh, keep in mind, while this, all this is happening, we're now on Wednesday of this week, and Jonathan Butler is starting to be an actual physical harm. Like, it's getting very dire for Jonathan Butler. His friends are telling him to stop. People are considering calling ambulances. But they're also, by this point, about 50 tents in the quad. So it went from one to six students to 50. And now you have 30, also you have 30 black football players on Saturday, November 7th, who are meeting and trying to figure out what to do. So what they did was they met with Jonathan Butler. And something amazing happened at this meeting. So 30 players are with John Butler. John Butler says he can't remember what happened in this meeting, that he's too lightheaded. But from what other people have said about what took place, this is what he said to them. And I think it's pretty remarkable. First, he said, this is all the racism I've had to deal with. I know you haven't had to deal with it as football players, but we need you. That's the first thing. The second thing he said was he told them about his friend named Sasha Khoury. I don't know if that name means anything to anybody here. But this is a, a biracial uh, Missouri swimmer who was also bipolar, and she was sexually assaulted by a member of the Missouri football team in 2010, and she took her own life. And she was a friend of, of, of Jonathan Butler. And a culture of silence protected the football team. And no one cared about her life. And so Jonathan Butler said to them, look, you might not have even been on the team in 2010, but you have a debt. You have a debt to pay for the memory of Sasha Corey. Are you going to step up or are you not? And so this team, by the way, many people on this team also had a taste of what it meant to be more than an athlete with Michael Sam. And they said, yeah, we can do this. We're going to go on strike. And that night, Anthony Sherrill's tweeted a statement that rocked everything. And I wish I could put this on a T-shirt. He, he, this is Anthony Sherrill's member of the team. He said, uh, the team will no longer participate in any football-related activities until President Tim Wolf resigns or is removed due to his negligence toward marginalized students. And then he wrote, the athletes of color on the University of Missouri football team truly believe in justice anywhere as a threat to justice everywhere. We will no longer participate in any football-related activities until President Tim Wolf resigns or is removed due to his negligence toward marginalized students. And then all caps, we are united. By midnight that night, I mean, this is the biggest story in the country. And by Sunday, Coach Pinkle sends out a tweet that very conspicuously is him with the black players, but behind him, all the white players. You call them the 31%, if you will. But the 31% of white players, very conspicuously centered. And Gary Pinkle said, the Mizzou family stands as one. We are united. We are behind our players. Now, Tim Wolf actually tried to laugh all of this off. But there was one little problem, and it was a doozy. You see, Wolf was making 450 grand a year. That's nice. That's a good wage. But if the football team missed their game that Saturday against Brigham Young, the school would have had to write a check for $1 million. By 9 a.m., students and faculty were gathering by the hundreds upon hundreds in the quad. By 10 a.m., Tim Wolf had to announce his resignation. Yeah. Now,
Tim Wolf put out a long, sort of obnoxious statement that I'm not even going to, I thought about reading, I'm not going to read it, but he did suggest his, uh, going forward that people on campus, black and white, join together in prayer to get through this difficult time. And I think the only appropriate response to that is to look at Tim Wolf and say, thanks for your input. <laughs> So the next thing that happened is Jonathan Butler was celebrated by going to the hospital and having his first meal in almost a week, and it was an IV. And by Tuesday of that week, and this is also, I think, dope, maybe not the sort of thing that we would want, but there's something beautiful about this. The players as a team issued a statement that they would not give interviews because they said the protesters deserve the biggest platform because it's their voices that should be heard. And this gave Butler, instead of it being a football player who just heard about this a few days ago, Jonathan Butler then had the stage, and this is what he said. He said, I know how corrupt the system is, and I know how much they don't value black lives. The football team stepping in, if that wouldn't have happened, the school truly wouldn't have responded until after I passed. Now, it would be great if the story ended there, but of course, that's not where it ended, because what you had after that, because this is Missouri, was backlash. By that night, there were th serious, credible threats of violence toward black students, reports on social media of gunshots on campus. A legislator named Rick Bratton tried to get a bill passed saying any player in the future would lose their scholarships if they refused to play. I mean, the indentured servitude here is so deep. And by the way, this Rick Bratton guy, just so you know this stuff is all connected in a very twisted, weird, right-wing way, he previously was in the news for fighting to get funding for what he called a Holocaust memorial that would have to be outside every Planned Parenthood in the state of Missouri. So that was his legislative priority before attacking football players. And his response was, he said, I want it to be a Vietnam-type wall. <laughs> and then he said, I know it sounds crazy. And I think it's just like... If, you, if you're Rick Bratton and you're already reached that point where you're like, wow, even for me, this is a little crazy. <laughs> Then you got some issues. Um, but that wasn't the only backlash. Since this took place, Gary Pinkle, the coach who stood by them, he was fired under an utter smokescreen where he resigned because of health. I, I know very credibly that was not true, that he was forced out. And the new coach had to actually have language in his contract that he would never support a strike by players because the Bratton bill failed because of protest. I should have added that. So they're trying to get it on the other side and saying no coach should ever support this ever again. And so, so the fight is on. And it happened and it scared all the right people, but it only lives, and that's, I'll end um, on these points here, it only lives if we say it lives. Because this is what they do with all resistance history. They either Santa Claus it, like Muhammad Ali, the Santa Clausification of Ali, as Cornel West put it, or they bury it. And that's why I wanted, to, I asked to do this talk at this conference, because this has only been a few months ago, and already people are on to the next topic, the next subject. It's like, especially with sports and resistance, it's like we're cats following a laser pointer. It's like, Missouri, yeah, oh, hey, look, LeBron, you know, and there's no sense that, like, no, this is history we have to treasure and hold on to and learn the lessons from. And if you think I'm exaggerating about people burying history, this was just unbelievable to me. MSNBC, which, you know, this allegedly liberal network, they um, had a, a, a show about Missouri, and they called the fact that they went on strike unprecedented. And they said explicitly, it's never happened before. Football players going on strike. Except that's not true. You got to go in the memory hole and find it.
67, Berkeley, football players walk. 68, Michigan State, they walk. 72, the Washington Huskies refused to take the field unless a statement against the war in Vietnam was read over the PA system. And it, and, and it, was, it was done by this old dude who was like, attention, we are told that people said players will not take the field for the second half unless I read this statement about the Vietnam War. It's just funny to me. Um, the football players burned their jackets in protest of racism. And at Syracuse, this is one of the wildest stories. There was the Syracuse Nine, the blacks players. They walked off and said, we're not coming back unless you hire a black assistant coach. And the, the, uh, the president of the school forced the football coach to hire a black assistant coach. And the next thing the football coach did was he kicked all nine players off the team. So by that fall, they had a black coach and no black players. So, But this is the history they want us to forget. And because it's worth, because obviously if you know that there's a history to it, then it seems less fantastical that you can do it. It doesn't become this thing, well, that's just what Missouri can do. It becomes, oh, there is a history of athletic resistance. And one last little note here, people might want to ask about this, I've had some people, lefty people, say to me, like, on one level, don't you think that this is a dangerous thing to celebrate? And I just want to put that out there in case people agree with it. Because they say, think about it, the football team basically fired the president of the school. Do you really want the football team to have this much power? Do you really want the football team to be that political? And my response to that is college football already has power. And college football is already political. It's about who's exercising that power. So is this dangerous? Yeah, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to racist-ass college presidents who don't know how to talk to black students. So, yeah. And... And it seems appropriate to end this meeting since I've quoted him a bunch of times with the words of, of Dr. John Carlos. And he said this, I've done a lot of talks with John Carlos, but the one I'll never forget is when we spoke on one of the first nights over at Occupy Wall Street and we addressed with like the, the, the people's mic and all the rest of it and like hundreds of people in Zuccotti Park and, and John Carlos was up there and what he said is he said, the point is not to be an Olympian. The point is not to be a star athlete. The point is to stand up wherever you are. If I hadn't have made the Olympics, I wouldn't have raised my fist in Mexico City, but I would have raised it in Harlem. And it's the same here. The lesson of this story is not you got to play football to challenge power on campus. It's that you got to stand where you are. And real courage means standing up when it's not popular. Real courage means standing up when you're part of that 7.7%. And real courage means you never ask permission to raise your fist. Thank you very much. So that was my talk about Ferguson football and the University of Missouri. There are going to be more talks from the conference posted at wearemany.org. The Just Stand Up Award this week is going to somebody who's actually making me excited about the 2016 Rio Olympics, swimmer Anthony Irvin, who is competing in two different events, including the 50-meter freestyle in this year's games. Now, what makes Anthony Irvin special is that he is now the only U.S. male swimming Olympian since 1904 who is also old enough to be president. Anthony Irvin is 35 years old, and he is badass. He's also outspoken. He's also politically fascinating. His story is unbelievable. I'm hoping to get Anthony Irvin on the show, so I don't want to actually reveal too much of it. But let's just say that it is a story about race, resistance, and someone who's 
tackled all of this with a journey that is unlike anybody else in the sports world. The book that he just wrote is called Chasing Water, and I cannot recommend it enough. I played a role in publishing it, I'm very proud to say. But Anthony Irvin, congratulations on making two different Olympic events. Congratulations on doing it at the age of 35. Congratulations on being away from the sport for over a decade and then coming back and kicking all kinds of ass. Well done. So that's the show for this week. For Sekou Smith, Anthony Irvin, my man Dan Bloom, I'm Dave Zirin. Listen up, everybody. You can contact me whenever you want at Edge of Sports at Slate.com. You can listen to past iterations of this show at EdgeofSportsPodcast.com. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Leave positive comments. All that stuff makes an absolutely huge difference for the life and viability of this show. We are out of here. Peace.